Yes, you're Stanford. It is Tuesday. It is 10 a.m. on July 4th. Welcome to the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molino, and I'm joined by co-host Jacob Schwartz-Lucas, representing EarthSharing.org and the Robert Schalkenbach Foundation. This is a program dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, and environmental degradation here in the Bay Area and beyond. We compare and contrast the ideas of the 19th century economist Henry George, with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers, also addressed. Our issues range from artificial intelligence, automation, and universal basic income, to city planning and the land value tax, a concept popularized by George. Today on the program, we're speaking to Victoria Fierce, a hacker by inclination. She is an organizer and co-founder of East Bay Forward, a pro-housing group in the Bay Area. She is also active and the Democratic Socialists of America, which has led to some conflicts to be resolved. Welcome, Victoria. Hi. So, uh, we can talk about all the good work East Bay Forward is doing, but it's, it's, I think everyone is talking about it right now, uh, and it's become a, a stereotype of everyone on the left, uh, infighting. And there's infighting between the pro-housing Yimby sorts and the Democratic Socialists, and it can look from the outsider's view just like a big, confusing, stupid mess, and it it kind of is. But yeah, how would you how would you say people who don't know anything about it should first understand what's going on right now? Uh, I think there's like I, so first I think like the the arguments and the, the discussion and kind of like the circular firing squad is kind of a good thing actually, because uh, for the same reason that architects have much better opinions about buildings than arsonists. Because we want to build something great, we all want to build something great. So everybody like really cares about it. Um, but then the devil is, of course, in the details of uh, like how do we build housing? What kind of housing do we build? Um, what do we want to see? And I think uh, like a lot of this roots from uh, ancient history in the United States with the concept of land ownership versus uh, leftist ideals of property and ownership and how good or bad that is for certain people. Um, I think there's a lot of common ground between leftists and Yimbies, and in fact, there's a lot of socialists in East Bay Forward and SF Yimby. There's a lot of Yimbies in the East Bay DSA and vice versa. So I think it's uh, you've get these like old school kind of progressive types who uh, possibly are kind of involved with uh, like NIMBY homeowners who've created this like unholy alliance of we have progressive values, so if we say the word progressive, then we're automatically progressive and there's no critical thought need to be had in there. So to take a step back, uh, so the DSA in Yimby, what first brought you to each of these groups? Uh, so SF Yimby, I guess, or the Yimby movement, the broader movement. Uh, I moved out here from Akron, Ohio about three years ago, and uh, I was looking for a home, a place to live. Uh, and I saw Sonia on Twitter, Sonia Tross on Twitter, uh, the SFEMB handle. And she said something about coming to a planning commission meeting and come and speak in favor of housing. I was like, yeah, sure, that sounds good. Because like, to me, it made sense. You know, Why aren't we building housing? We should just be building housing. Here's somebody advocating for building housing. I can get behind that. So I showed up to a planning commission meeting, said some things, 
And then I just kind of like started getting more and more involved. I ended up at a, a SF Yimby Congress meeting where we have all the Yimbys of the Bay Area get together and meet. And I'd ask Sonia, so why isn't there like an East Bay subcommittee? And she just pointed at me and said, oh, well, I guess you're it now. So then we started East Bay Forward like a couple of weeks later after that. And uh, the, the socialist side of things, the DSA sort of stuff, uh, I only recently joined the DSA like earlier this year, I think. But I've always kind of identified as a lefty socialist radical type. Um, I've always been kind of like personally I've been kind of pushed away by the idea of like parties. Like even to this day, I don't believe uh, registration with the Democratic Party is like in line with the life I want to live. Um, and the DSA kind of lesser so like I like some of my deeper radical roots are I'm an anarchist. So mm -hmm. I don't really believe in kind of organized structure to do a thing. I believe in smaller affinity groups that can meet together, like four or five people that have a specific goal and a task. And I think the DSA kind of flies contrary to that. But at the same time, the DSA is like, I see a lot of potential in it. And that's also why I really got involved and joined up in the first place is a lot of people in the United States these days, they, they're not familiar with socialism. They're not familiar with leftism. And it's kind of coming back with a resurgence against, uh, it's like a rising up against uh, President Trump. So seeing this and seeing this energy and seeing all these young people motivated by it, I was like, oh, well, maybe I should also join and help out. And my presence being there will also kind of give my own leftist background and pro-housing background. And I think they really kind of intersect where leftists don't have a good housing platform right now. Yimbies have a good housing platform. And most of the, the DSA members and Yimbies I've talked to say, oh, well, traditional progressives in the Bay Area, they don't have a good housing platform. But if we wanted a socialist platform, it'd very closely be something that the Yimby party advocates for, like building more housing generally, increasing funding for affordable housing, undoing segregationist zoning laws, um, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I first went to DSA meetings and Yimby meetings with the same kind of hesitation of just knowing, you know, will I be welcomed here? Will my views be compatible? Uh, first, I went to the Yimby meeting, was the I guess uh, the platform meeting a, a couple years ago, <laughs> and, and and Sonia was saying that you know a lot of people are going to disagree about, about mm -hmm. a lot here, and she says the only thing we all have to agree on is we want more housing. Mm -hmm. Uh, the DSA meetings, they're trying to, you know, they're more nebulous, trying to figure out what they're going for. Uh, and I came in kind of out of curiosity. I, I'm certainly not a Marxist, uh, and I figure I know, like, some people feel that they can be overrun by overbearing Marxist types or something. And uh, I, I felt this was maybe the fact that it was a new one. It, it had a lot of people with different minds, and they tried to mostly not backstab each other too much. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess that's a bit inspiring, but you know, flash forward a few months and we see this blow up on Twitter. This is about a month ago. It was a major, major kind of fight that I felt got ugliest when it was you and uh, I guess uh, Lennon Lover 69, uh, <laughs> Brace, Brace Belder, yeah, uh, yeah. Belden, excuse me. Uh, yeah. And it just, it's, it got extremely ugly. So what, what's, is it worth diving the details or is it fine to not draw too much attention to how dumb it was? Uh, I, I think... I don't know. I think there's like some kind of uh, like within leftism, there's always these people, the vanguard that are like, we we absolutely must keep an eye out for all kind of fascists, all kind of anti, all kind of capitalists, anybody who seeks to overthrow our socialist agenda and get in the way, lest our socialist comrades stray too far from our leftist ideals. And I think that 
they do a perfectly legitimate and valid component of like moving the Overton window even further left than many leftists are more comfortable with. So from that perspective, I think it's ultimately useful. I don't think it's terribly productive if we're talking about hammering out specific policy. But again, this also kind of goes back towards like socialists and leftists these days don't seem to have a solid like like if you talk about the mortgage interest rate, second mortgage interest deduction or something, if you ask a leftist about it, they'll say, oh, well, of course we should work on that. But ultimately, you need to understand the property is theft. And it's kind of like goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the root of the issue. And you build like this foundation of idea before you start talking about socialism. But I think part of this is that a lot of leftists kind of get up in this like this uh, mental gymnastics exercise of what does socialism mean before they kind of go outside that into building actionable things and changing policy. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's what is everyone really kind of going for in the long term? It's it's really unclear. I mean, you're right, they're pushing back against the fact that the left for decades and decades has really defined itself as just not being the right. And what has they, they feel betrayed that that's gotten them a bunch of kind of middle, you know, the road centrists that don't seem to be speaking for them and just being told get on board. So I, you can see where the, the kind of energy that goes in the DSA came from. Uh, but I guess I feel that people who go there, it's uh, can be it's a mixture of kind of you know weirdly dogmatic folks and people who just really don't know what to think but just want to do something mm-hmm. and and it's a lot of really uh, you know powerful energy but how can it be directed and uh, yeah well, we're seeing it in, in the fighting but I, I guess to talk about what the two sides each are like fighting about Yimbys versus DSA and DSA versus Yimbys how and can there be a kind of synthesis between them. Uh, so I guess talking about like Yimbys as they're attacked by the socialists, they were described, and this is you know a famous quote that you quoted uh, uh, in a DSASF: "Pro development, pro gentrification, and pro landlord." What, what do you say when the Yimby groups are being called those three things? So I think uh, I think I think that I think the leftists and the DSA and Yimbys aren't really all that different if you look at kind of the way that political movements function. In that you've got the vanguards who, you know, they, they hold strong on their ideals and they want to move. And there's also just a couple bad apples that ruin it for everybody. And they're just like the really awful bad people who get on Twitter and just pick fights. And admittedly, I was one of those early on. And uh, I think I think that's kind of what the case is, is that you, you, you do have people who take up the banner of Yimbyism and say, oh, no, we don't need any affordable housing. Gentrification's a myth. And all these people of color are just making up stuff. Um, And obviously that's not true. And I think this is also the same kind of thing on the leftist side of, you know, there's people who say, you know, we should just kill all rich people or literally eat rich people, boil them alive or something. Or we're going to have a revolution and we have people up against the wall. And like these kind of radical extremist views, again, are like the thesis and the antithesis. And we need to make a synthesis of the, the, the two blending together. And I think having the idea of universal housing or housing for all is kind of like an, a big banner that all of us can get, get behind. And I think what it will take is uh, we need better leadership in, in social circles that uh, can produce like a compelling argument that's not you should feel bad because you support capitalism, but more capitalism is a wound that affects all of us. So I understand where you're coming from, but we should all work together to overthrow those bonds. I mean, when you start off and the DSA group is saying, we need to dismantle capitalism, 
what do you do with that? It's 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 a big big thing that doesn't really have a picture, and a lot of people mean a lot of different things by capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's to say that the affordable housing crisis is caused by capitalism is such a vague statement to be almost meaningless. And but but I, I guess to go back to just the fact that you have a lot of kind of fringe folks. How do you keep a group, and especially in the leadership, how do you keep a group from being slurred by its most kind of outspoken slash maybe you know bit weirdo members? I think it's a lot of policing, uh, a lot of, uh, like, we set up our values right up ahead. Um, like, actually, the first thing that East Bay Forward did was we established a code of conduct because we recognize that out there in politics, it's rough, and there's people who say terrible, awful things, and we like to make it clear that, you know, this isn't helpful, this doesn't move it forward. So we set out a code of conduct when we formed, which I don't, I'm not really familiar with a lot of other EMB groups that have something like that, but we've been able to use it and kind of point it against our own members and say, Okay, well, you're being a little for or crappy or whatever for whatever reason. Uh, so it says right here in the code of conduct you can't do that. And then once people kind of like step back and realize that, then a lot of them have been changing and understanding it a bit better to realize that you know coalition building is really important. And part of coalition building is that you'll have to sacrifice some of your ideals if you want to make progress. And coming out and saying, oh yeah, absolutely, capitalism is the problem. Okay, well, that's good to know, but what's the answer to that? Like, if capitalism's the answer. And then some people will say, oh, well, socialism is the answer. Okay, can you unpack that? What does it look like? And if you ask people to really expand on their ideas, that's when you start coming with good policy ideas that come out of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one thing that you're talking about the code of conduct, civility, it can real you could person can very easily forget how important civility is, which might be why Twitter is constantly just a cesspool. Uh, I mean, it's it's an amazing, beautiful, wonderful place, but it's a it's the worst place. Uh, yeah, but the DSA meetings, uh, they have the progressive stack, at least in my meetings. Is this universal with all DSA kind of meetings? Uh, uh, I don't know. I've only been to East Bay, excuse me, East Bay DSA meetings. I've not been to a lot of other DSA groups meetings. Like I said, I just joined earlier this year and I've been kind of like shied away from institutional politics like this. Sure. So this is all kind of new to me, I guess. Yeah. I mean, to explain the progressive stack, progressive stack is, you know, it, it, it isn't just saying, you know, free speech, period, let it happen. They're saying that traditionally through different kinds of power structures, free speech tends to, you know, overrepresent. Uh, you know, you know the people with power over mm-hmm. those. So they try to go s- to special lengths to give voices that aren't heard, uh, you know, kind of a, a leg up in the line and all that. And it sounds like, well, you know, how do you, have you not, it not abuse this? How does it not become a mess? It it just tends to work. I'm really surprised how well it works in practice, at mm-hmm. least in in my experience. Uh, and yeah, uh, yeah, and I guess. And, and that's another thing just being yelled, you know, railed against the Yimby crowd is that, oh, this is, you know, for the power structure. They are an incredibly, you know, white male privileged crowd that's representing the tech bros and, and all this. And there there is, you know, I mean, I think that belies the diversity. How would you how would you say, you know, even if the, the demographics back that up, how do you respond to someone who just says, I look at your composition and I just can't listen to you? Uh, to that, I guess I would say that they're not really looking at the full composition. I think it goes back to the bad apple issue where you get a couple really loud white bros who think they know everything because white bros have that tendency to do that in today's time. But like to, to step back a minute, like every Yimby organization I know of is led by somebody who is uh, a person of color or they're uh, a female identifying or women identifying. 
Um, the like the only cis white dude I know who's in a leadership position, I guess, in the indie movement would be Brian Hanlon, and he's the one who's are uh, working up in Sacramento and suing cities. But like every other group, like Seattle Yimbies, uh, Laura Lowe, she's a woman. Uh, Sonia Trauss, she's a woman. I run East Bay Forward with a couple other people. My co-executive for East Bay Forward is a person of color. Uh, most of East Bay Forward is people of color, surprisingly. Somehow we've been able to to keep that up and go. And I think part of it is we like do a lot of specific targeted outreach and say, hold on. We want to build a city that works for everybody, so let's stop having them planned by white dudes from hundreds of years. So we'd like be the change that we want to see. So you you wrote an article on on Medium this a few months ago, or a little you know a few months ago, uh, called Yimby Socialism, mm-hmm. and uh, it it tries to push back on what you know you would say the Yimby crowd is about housing, and that's that's it. And this tries to say there should be really more about you know economic justice in the Yimby movement. Uh, one, uh, yeah, how has this been received in the Yimby crowd? Has anyone really pushed back against this, or has it been well-received? I don't think anybody's pushed back against it. Like, uh, like pretty much everybody has been in favor of it. They read it, and they're like, oh, yes, no, we totally should be caring about economic justice. It's really important that we do if we want to have a functional city that works for everybody. And then I think it also just kind of goes back to you've got some, like— uh, some of the vanguard and the progressives, and they say they're just beating this drum of Yimbies are bad, Yimbies are bad, and they just repeat it over and over, and then people kind of close off their minds, and they don't give any critical thought, and they're just like, oh, well, I heard this is bad. And then I think it also kind of like points to some of the problems with California politics is that when elections come around, like the way that you know how to vote for the 99 ballot initiatives that are on your ballot is that you have a friend who has a slate card. So it's entirely like, who do you know? Not necessarily who has the better message. And if you know people who don't like Yimbies for whatever reason, then you don't like Yimbies. Hmm. To talk more about, you know, kind of long-term differences that, you know, maybe people would be pushed away from, you say you identify as an anarchist, and Sonia has gone on record sanctioned as an anarchist. I've never quite understand exactly what flavor or to what extent that is. Uh, uh, how much is that, like... Because I feel like true anarchism is a whole big thing, and how how do you remedy that with basically trying to make a difference at a in a real level in politics? Uh, so I think like I don't think we'll ever see like a planetary version of anarchy where the entire planet supports anarchy. But I think anarchy can be implemented like through local steps, so you can take small ideas from anarchy. And some background is, uh, even before I moved out to the Bay Area, I've always kind of identified myself as an anarchist. I started an anarchist uh, hackerspace back in Akron. Uh, I was involved with the Noisebridge hackerspace here in San Francisco, which is like a world-famous anarchist collective of hackers, a hackerspace. And uh, to me, like, all this work being involved in, like, actual anarchist work and anarchist culture is it it kind of has shifted my idea of what anarchy is and a lot of people look at anarchy and say oh well it means no rules no leadership no structure whatever i disagree with that anarchy to me means self-governance and self-regulation and self-structure um which when you take those ideas and translate them to an activist organization like sfmb or east bay forward uh, we still, at our core, we run on this value of duocracy, where if you want to do a thing, you do it, and we try to shy away from people having to ask for permission to do a thing if it's not controversial. And I think that's been uh, a big strength with uh, our, our leadership structure, is we're, we just like literally show up to a thing and say, oh, you want to run an event? Cool. Uh, here's a link to the website. Go ahead and do it. Oh, you want to use official EBF branding? 
yeah, sure, why not? Everybody does. Um, and kind of the same thing with SFEMB. That's also why we're seeing like smaller like breakout groups of SFEMB grow into bigger organizations like Grow the Richmond or the Western Soma Voice. These like started and had their roots in the MB movement, and they've grown off to be their own organizations because for whatever reason, they wanted to go their own way. So when you talk about you know you know the the benefits of decentralization and local control, local control with zoning and so much can really mean really terrible oppressive things how, how do you how do you deal with the tension between those two things of how local control can go bad so that's an excellent question um so my idea of well so, so like yeah local control definitely goes bad i think we see it a lot if you look at for example palo alto or uh, the rockridge neighborhood of oakland you get people who have really obsessive local control over their jurisdiction and they use that power to push out people and be oppressive and i think uh I think there is ways to go about kind of implementing anarchy over top of that while still not enabling local control to be an oppressive a tool of oppression. Um, something I would like to see for Bay Area governance is uh, have like a universal planning code that applies to the entire Bay Area or even just all of California. And instead of having every city have its own little planning commission, you have like smaller regional planning commissions, like one for, I don't know, West Oakland, one for North Oakland. And they're only allowed to play with these really limited fundamental like building block tools of zoning and then you know have like a region wide or a statewide appeals board. So that way you still have like local control over what goes where, but some higher authority says, Well, you can't be a jerk about it. You can't be a racist jerk about it. Um, that's what I see as like a future for local control in the Bay Area that maintains local control, but doesn't like let people use local control to be terrible people. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that you're describing to a central point, just the practical benefits of centralization, which I mean, you see, like, for example, in, in Japan, national zoning mm-hmm. codes make a huge difference. And yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen exclusionary policies be challenged on a federal level by the Supreme Court and, and so on. It's really one of the only ways... Uh, you know, forward. Uh, okay, but as far as how how receptive people been in DSA, or I guess how knowledgeable, what every single person in the Indy crowd feels is the the biggest, most important thing to attack. Prop thirteen here in mm-hmm. California is are the folks you know in DSA on board, or is there hesitation? Oh yeah. oh yeah, no. There's totally people who look at Prop thirteen and say, oh, well, we're not taxing multi million dollar homes, we're not taxing billion dollar real estate deals. That's a bit absurd. We should be taxing the rich. And I think uh, that's like kind of a recent development, at least with a newer socialist people who are like opening up to the idea of socialism. I don't want to like like uh, cast shade on socialists who've been in the Bay Area for a long time and already know how this Prop 13 thing works out. But I've been noticing a lot more younger, newer socialists to the movement wake up and say, oh, our land taxation is incredibly unfair. Because a lot of protests come out for or in opposition to housing projects because that's visible capital. You see people moving money and moving mass amounts of capital around, and that gets a big reaction. But the idle capital, where you see people sitting in multi-million dollars luxury single-family homes doing nothing, nothing at all. That capital is not moving anywhere. It just sits there and gets more. Nobody really notices that because it's not as visible. It's just idle capital. But now people are starting to look at that and say, oh, well, idle capital, nobody talks about it enough. That's like the core problem of the systemic issues of unfair taxation and not being able to tax the rich is we've made it illegal to tax the rich. 
You talk about, I guess, a moral question. I mean, this goes down to, is it immoral to build housing and to profit off of it? And I think people say, well, look at all this, you know, that's going wrong and, and, and people are making profits and making and it's it's unaffordable how these profits are immoral. And when you talk about land versus actual construction, these are, I think, two very different systems of, of morality. If you talk about, I guess, the morality of construction workers, and that's something that people have criticized the Yimby crowd for, of just saying construction costs need to be less, it's hard to find anybody who says, it's I'm all for making money on, on owning land and, and benefiting from land speculation. It's across the board. That's something we all agree on, and it seems like that should be the first thing we can attack and yet it's kind of never is brought up yeah i I think i think that also kind of goes back to like what our nation was founded on if you like look at the u.s constitution there's that the takings clause in there that says the government can't take your property your private property your personal property whatever without just compensation and uh when you look at things through light of that you say okay well i don't want people to make a profit on owning land well we'd have to go to the root of the problem to make that go away. So I think we can build up the movement to work towards that, but stopping anything that benefits people along the way because it's not perfect, because it's not ideologically pure, I think that ends up harming people more often than not. Yeah, I mean, we talk about, I guess, you know, practicality, and you say we need to you know, change Prop 13, repeal it today, and that, that does make some people feel if they are, you know, if they represent a poor neighborhood of, of homeowners, they feel, well, this means displacement for me. And when you have people push back against that, those are people who become Prop 13 defenders. And if you, in time, it's only those people left, there's a very, very virulent uh, defense of it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, how, how can we you know, work with these people to say, we need to end a system that doesn't work without saying uh, it means displacement for your people? Uh, I think, so like, uh, I heard a quote, and I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it was from the, the Chapo Trap House leftist podcast, and somebody said that uh, a lot of liberals absolutely love, <clears throat> excuse me, they absolutely love to say things like, black lives matter, and I love queer people, but the second you ask them to be uncomfortable or make any kind of personal sacrifice, they they refuse to, and they just step back. And I think that's the same thing with Prop 13. Uh People have benefited from it for so long, and if you even suggest that maybe a white person should be uncomfortable about giving up that benefit, then it just all falls apart. But the reality is, like, I think the people who have benefited from Prop 13 are less numerous than the ones who are being harmed by it. And I think it's really important to kind of, like, recognize that and realize that. And it's the same thing of, you know, tax the rich, we should go after the rich people. But as soon as you know a rich person, then they, they kind of dial it back. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, we should tax the rich, but, like, not my rich. I'm a good rich person. Do, do you think it's too, you know, much of kind of navel-gazing to feel that the Chapo Trap House universe is kind of determining the entire culture of the left? Because it really feels like they are the epicenter of everything. Or is this a kind of narrow view? Because I feel that when they kind of make statements, it seems to be the kind of common sense you know, just you know immediately afterwards and the thing that frustrates me about that is they have really never talked about housing and certainly not you know land i mean there's one rant uh, felix went on about kind of funding public infrastructure which is you know a, a kind of boring issue about local city finance and and wonkishness and and and, and then they immediately dial back because they they run something where they say policy 
this is boring and we don't care about it. We want to talk about you know culture almost exclusively, and they are really, really set against the kind of wonkish Matt Iglesias set for that very reason. And I, I just wonder about if the left is being determined by kind of a you know an anti-policy culture, how can we deal with it when, when policy matters, or at least it's unavoidable to say policy really harms people? That's a good question. Uh, well, I think I first want to say, like, I'm of the left, and I don't actually listen to Chapo Trap House. I listened to that one episode where the quote came from. Oh, and funny. Only, yeah, only because a friend sent it to me. But even then, I, like, didn't really like the show. I didn't like the episode. The topics were, like, let's, you know, let's have a circle jerk and just talk about Twitter fights. And, like, that's okay. I do that for my job. That's not really all that interesting to me. And I think it definitely is a problem that a lot of leftists are getting their kind of political orientation from this one podcast. Because, like, where's the critical thought in that? You're basically getting your ideas hand-fed to you, and then you're just expected to fall in line. And you know, if the Chapel Trap House said this, then it's cool to be in that group. And if you don't like Chapel Trap House, then somehow you're a fascist because you don't like these ideas. But I think I think that's like I think that's kind of a respect or a pers- perspective of the greater political climate we're in right now, where you're either for something or you're against, and there's no nuanced ground, there's no middle ground, there's no well, maybe in certain contexts, I like to think there's no compromise, and uh, I, I just don't—I don't think it's really productive. I think what we need is we need more alternatives. I guess like people talk about, oh, well, we want to tear apart capitalism, so we need to promote a socialist alternative so people are pulled over to it instead of forcing people to it. And I think the same thing—we need a Chapo Trap House alternative that pushes people towards a more nuanced view of things and have different views of socialism. Yeah, I feel the the idealist would say everyone should think for themselves. Everyone should really use their own brain, you know, read a few things here and there and come up with your own, you know, ideas of where you stand on things. What you know, I I guess their their, you know, reason d'etre is that they feel that when this happens, there tends to be kind of you know, thinkers who would just kind of say anything and kind of use, you know, rationalizations to basically confuse people and kind of perpetuate, you know, this this thing. And I guess their thing is, let's be dumb and let's say common sense things all the time. And there's a certain logic to that, because when you go to a group where it becomes these Hegelians versus these, you know, neoclassical economists, they're speaking different languages and the average person can't make any sense of that. And they're mm-hmm. saying... Well, let's look at common sense. And I, I feel when I read something like the you know Yimby socialism right here, uh, this it feels like kind of a different idea of what common sense could be. It's just saying that you know housing is a right every person deserves, not to feel that they should be priced out of being able to live, mm-hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> you know, in their own you know world, in their own city, in their own community. Uh, and just saying that, yeah, it's you know uh, there is a lot of structural problems that make it really hard for people just to make it by, and it's and for people on the right to say, well, the econ- economics don't back that up, it, it people get frustrated because that's not the world they live in, and uh, yeah, I mean, I guess how technical do you think people can afford to be without having other people glaze their eyes over and say this is this is just trying to confuse me? That's a that's another good question. Um... Because it comes up when you talk about like BMR rates of housing, you're talking about okay, this is boring, this is confusing. The guy who's saying, uh, you know, this is kind of for the rich. I believe that guy. It sounds like common sense, and this is this is boring econ talk, and it's it's tough. I, I think I think uh, I think part of that is uh, we've had this kind of like for the last uh, I don't know ten twenty years or something ever since uh, Clinton. 
uh, we've had this idea of the technocrat, of the person who they are well-educated and they know all the policy details and they understand what a Laffer curve is, things like that. And we've kind of looked to them and said, okay, <clears throat> you've received this education in city planning, so therefore you know how to do city planning, even if it doesn't make sense, and we put those people in power. And then they've built these fantastic bureaucratic apparatuses like below market rate percentages. You've got very low income percentage and low income. You've got the state density bonus. You've got local density bonuses. You've got all these ridiculous things and rules and details. And I think they're just kind of like built up to be this cottage industry of how many ways can we slice up the American population. And uh, this past uh, this past week, I went to a Jacobin reading group in San Francisco, and we talked about gentrification and housing. And one person brought up this really interesting idea that like makes total sense to me, and I hadn't like put it together in an American context, but the concept of universality, where again, this is like another common sense thing. Oh, why don't we just build housing for everybody? And the answer to that is, well, yes, of course. If we got rid of these ideas about you need to be means tested to fit in a house or you have certain segregated income levels or you have to undo redlining. If we like kind of push aside these, these small policy details and work to abolish them and have universal housing, I think that's actually a big thing that could go away towards addressing these issues that like it's too policy wonk heavy because in American welfare systems all over low income housing, healthcare, education, we've had this like, interesting idea of picking winners and losers and like if you're of this particular race or this particular class or particular background you get these particular benefits and if you're not then you don't even if you otherwise should get them and it's just a, a history of the american welfare system i think that's kind of poisoned the well so to speak of you hear people talking about these you know se separating people by by income and like it doesn't make sense because Again, it is like a common sense thing. Right now, how housing works, I would say I would describe it, it's largely imperative as opposed to declarative. In, we talk about the process of how approval meetings happen and what the rules are for below market rate units. And in the end, does it work or does it not work? It doesn't matter as long as the process is the right process. And we see you know, affordable housing you know, processes, everyone agrees, this is great. And then in the end, what is the result? No housing gets built. And they say, this is fine because the process is fair. All hail the process. <laughs> All hail the process. Yeah, and I and it, I think you're seeing more of a kind of change that, you know, maybe this, you know, recent state things of saying, no, you have to have results. You have to build housing. You can't just have a process you agree with mm -hmm. because there is an unholy kind of alliance that happens there with the people who really care about, you know, what they want and they feel the process is working them. And then you have, you know, kind of the anti-housing crowd who realizes they can use what seems like a righteous process to get what they want, too. And, yeah, I mean, the, the process, it, it, you can say to everyone, it doesn't work. And what, it, it doesn't. What, what, but people still cling to it. I mean, what, what will it take to get people off the process, do you think? I, I think, like, requiring us to focus more on the outcomes and the results is really important. And I think a good example of this, of, like, process that we all worship, but it doesn't actually mean anything, is a California housing element law. Every city's got to develop this housing element plan that specifies certain sites within a city of where they're going to build housing. And they go through this wonderful process, and they come out in the end, they say, all right, we agree that we want housing here. But then they don't actually follow through on it, and they just you know respect this whole big process. And I think, like, 
I think those are those kind of things are like the outcome of you know you you get process heavy discussion happening in Sacramento and state law and local government and people say we've spent so much time and energy to find a way to tiptoe around the landmines of what we can and can't talk about and what we can and can't say that uh, we've just encoded it into the process to say, all right, previously humans had a tough time getting along on this issue, so we're going to make sure that we set up these nice rules to make sure we always get along on this issue, even if the answer is, at the end, we still don't get along. Like, that doesn't that doesn't build housing. It seems to me that uh, what people are really sick of is the policy wonks coming up with many different policies that seek to paper over the problem or, uh, you know, just just try to rebalance this structure that is inherently um, unbalanced and that it's not necessarily policy that's the problem, but it's just that we just don't have elegant policies that cover a large number of situations um, in a in a concise form. So something like the land value tax and maybe something like universal basic income could be a way to cover a large group of situations um, and provide universal housing uh, for people in a way that didn't require the need to say, oh, if you make below this income or you know you're of this race or this demographic. Um, that that could all become unnecessary. What what would be your reaction to that, Victoria? Do you think there are a limited number of policies that we could all get behind um, that that would basically, yeah, remove the need to hand everything over to uh, the policy wonks to sort of make these micro corrections in the structure that's inherently unbalanced. I think there are, and I think this kind of like speaks back to us talking about about universality earlier. Is that like these policy wonks? They like to split things up to make sure that people don't kind of fall through the cracks, so to speak. But then we don't actually make like like if we're if we're pouring a population into a bowl of housing or something, um, and the bowl overfills, some people will look at that and say, "Well, we don't want the poor people at the very bottom of the bowl to end up getting flushed out." When the answer is build a bigger bowl. Um, and I think we worry so much about these ed conditions and what ifs and what about it that we end up just kind of building these tiny little band-aids over paper cuts that ultimately don't reflect, uh, you know, simple answers that could address a lot of these broader patterns. We get so tied up in the details of, well, this process didn't work for this person, so we should protect against all kinds of situations that end up with it not protecting that person even if the answer is to just change the process generally. So, I mean, and often what you're doing is with, with the very poorest people, um, when, when you help them, those that uh, just barely do not fall within that category are actually made uh, worse off. For, so, for example, if you help everyone below a, a certain income level, but the ones just above that are not helped, and you know suddenly the, the poorest people have more money to pay for apartments or or whatever, uh, that's just going to bid up the real estate for um, you know people that have slightly higher income. Uh, so, so it's like you know it just starts to be this game of like you said you know dicing people up and, uh, and yeah instead of having a, an elegant solution that just allows everyone to be part of the bowl. Yeah, I, I think uh, so. Like, here's a really good example, I guess. Uh, so, I live in downtown Oakland. I live in a 150 year old apartment building, 
And uh, as some people know, I, I quit my tech job, uh, or rather left my tech job a couple months ago, which means I don't have a six-figure salary anymore. I make about 800 a month on my Patreon. My rent is $2,000 a month. And uh, if I go above $1,300 in income per month, if I make more, if I make enough money to pay rent, I don't get food stamps. Right, but it's, right. I mean, that's the thing, like just policies that feel right. Do they work? Do they have unintended consequences? And really, unless they are, you know, I guess, simple, elegant and correct. No, they're they're always going to be things just break down with them. And that's mm-hmm. I mean, people don't really think enough about kind of correctness and elegance as much as just making sure something's you know it's good enough to get it passed and and it will do some good and it certainly does even when it is broken in a lot of ways mm. yeah we've built this beautiful we've built these wonderful beautiful golden hoops to jump through why would we bother throwing away the golden hoops they're so beautiful how can you say that so I guess like two ideas of zero-sum thinking and zero-sum thinking maybe you know on the left and the DSA type thinking of saying there's only so much and there it's us versus them and it feels like you're talking about growing the bowl of housing for instance it's like no there's not enough housing there's not going to be enough housing there's never going to be enough housing there's going to be you know us versus them you got to fight for your housing and you got to take it at their benefit and that's that's their message and i would say the the zero sum thinking from the right would be uh, you know, there's efficiency. There's the the kind of beautiful way to build as much as possible. You might lose fairness and morality, and you might you know crack some eggs in the process. But this is this is the correct economic efficient way to do it. Uh, how do you respond to like that kind of either or thinking in both those cases? Uh, I'm usually like in the context of debating with somebody or arguing with somebody, I usually use the pattern of yes and. You know, they'll say, well, we got to fight for our housing. I'm like, yes. And wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to fight for housing? What if housing was just guaranteed? And people sort of like subtly change their approach. They, they Some people look at this and say, housing is going to be a forever eternal uphill struggle. And there's nothing we can do to change that. So we're just going to have to keep fighting. And then once you mention, well, yeah, but what if we didn't have to fight? Then people kind of like stop for a minute and they think, oh, what would that look like? What would it look like if we didn't have to fight? What if it looked like if we could just, you know, live or something? Um, And that's usually a response I have to that. And like, uh, it's definitely not an either or thing. And I want to say like, Yimbies are also kind of uh, rightfully critiqued about this too, is that we have kind of an either or strategy for some things. And I think uh, as we've matured as a movement, uh, we've kind of opened up more to the idea of nuance and kind of gradiated responses to certain things. But still at the fundamental, the, the, the root of the MP movement is we don't have enough housing. We need to build more housing. We're talking to Vittoria Fierce. This is the Henry George program on KZSU Stanford, Vittoria Fierce of East Bay Forward. And, you know, on the matter of Henry George, uh, you know, the title of the show reflects him. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I personally came to Henry George a couple of years ago or just kind of read his work in economics, which I never really, you know, even heard of before. Not many people have. And I was inspired in this very thing of just saying that there isn't a trade-off between morality and economic efficiency. And, it feels like something that you think you could find a lot of receptiveness on both the left saying you can, you know, every time someone says, oh, you know, stop right there. Economics says you can't do that. You can say, you know, this is completely valid, you know, universally accepted economics that say you can have, you know, economic justice. And on the right saying you don't have to antagonize poor people anymore. <laughs> you don't, I mean, not on the right, but the kind of you know market side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but still, I mean, I feel it's it's not uphill battle because it's it's you know who cares about some dead guy? 
you know, and, I, and, and the ideas. And they are kind of fusty and, uh, I guess, maybe a little hard to consume. What, what's, I mean, you are – I don't know how familiar you are with all of Henry George, but you've spoken to him a few times on Twitter. What, what are your thoughts on, on his particular train of thought and how it reflects on all this? Uh, I think in kind of like – and I want, I want to tie this into like Marxism too is that uh, both Henry George and Karl Marx, they, they wrote volumes about economic theory, about socialism and Marxism and Georgism. And those were written you know, decades ago, hundreds of years ago even, like before we had the internet, before we had long-distance rail service, before we had a well-connected planet where uh, people – like it's really easy to move things around. Uh, and I think taking wholesale economic theories from long time ago when we have a completely different economic system this day is it falls a little bit short. And I think what we need to do is not necessarily take Marxism and not take Georgism and apply it exactly word for word to modern day economics. I think we should use them as reference points and look to them and say, here's some good ideas. Okay, now how does it work knowing we've got you know the last couple hundred years of economic research to support the nuance in these things? Um, and I think that also kind of goes back towards the either-or-ism, is that back in the day, back when Karl Marx was writing, uh, it kind of was an either-or thing. You're either proletariat or you're the bourgeois. And I think these days it's not so, no, it's not so cut and clear, and I think that there's other approaches to be considered, and we need to, like, if we're going to be a revolutionary society, as uh, many Leninists would say and Trotskyists would say, if we're going to be a revolutionary society, we need to constantly be reinventing ourselves and thinking about it and sticking to old ideas that don't map one-to-one. It's not really the most efficient, I guess, or cleanest way to go forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if I were to make a defense in that side of the ideas of Henry George, he was kind of weird for being weirdly universal into a point that it's so broad that people just kind of don't feel like it describes our particular world enough. Because he does talk about, you know, this, you know, ideas that apply both to ancient tribal nomadic cultures and a world where we have automation for everything. And mm-hmm. it's kind of weird in, a, in an area before AI and robots, he was talking about what we worry about today, automation. Mm-hmm. And this is something, you know, you look at the neoclassical ideas of the entire 20th century, every, you know, thinker, you know, look at something as simplistic as the Phillips curve that, you know, how could that apply in anything outside of a specific context? It doesn't make any sense when you talk about a world where robots do everything. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, I just, I guess in, I guess a continuous problem is we look at old ideas, you know, with that are context specific and just say this is going to move forward in these kind of contexts as well. We have zoning laws that worked well in a place that, you know, well, from what they wanted to keep the. the, (laughs) They worked very well. Yeah. I mean, they they worked like gangbusters. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, I mean, you say it, uh, you know, they did a certain effect at a certain point. And then as time goes on. They not only continue to do that, but then also create real, 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 you know, consequences when the context changes. And we still cling to these, you know, to what we used in the past. And mm-hmm. I, I don't I, I don't know if there's good things to say about that. But, I mean, how responsive to kind of innovative changes in, in, in policy do you think people – I mean, innovation is a bad name when it, when it's this shiny new idea. Nine times out of ten is going to blow up in your face. I don't know. How do how do you sell innovation when it has such a bad track record in so many ways? I don't know. I think uh, I mean I think there's a lot to be learned from uh, the technology industry in terms of how politics should kind of move. Uh, surprisingly, 
is that uh, in, in when I used to work in tech, we would have a, a stand-up meeting. We practice agile software development, it's called, where you, uh, you don't really plan out too far ahead, but you plan out just far enough that you can see. And then as you like get halfway to the end of the week or something, you take a break and you look back at what you've done that week and if it still fits. So this like constant cycle of do a thing, plan a thing, and then look back and make sure it was the thing that you wanted to do and that you're getting the right impacts about that. I don't think we have like I think part of it is we still have a really like interesting political governance system of you have a state legislature that meets in a centralized place and they debate bills and they pass a big package once a year. Like that's not really responsive enough to the realities of society, I guess. Um so I think like I think incrementalism is a good thing in in that aspect. Uh, I think there's uh, a lot to be said for looking back at the results of policy more frequently than we do now. Yeah, but when you talk about you know a slur on tech communities, they have a very kind of clean world they live in, and they feel they might be too receptive to unrealistic, elegant ideas that the world does not have. And mm-hmm. I, I mean that's certainly true so much of the time. And yet, elegance can be a good thing. Sometimes you do need a hard and fast you know rule. How do you how do you get around a slur of just saying that you know tech people have a mindset which is impractical and the world can never be this elegant? I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's impractical. Uh, some some other tech background of mine is that I come like before I came out here to work in tech. Uh, I was a free software open source developer. I wrote uh, graphics drivers for the Linux kernel, uh, although those probably aren't around anymore. But doing that was I worked with a bunch of Europeans in like traditional free software, free culture, rah 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 techno communism sort of environment. And I think a lot of really good things came out of that that people don't really – that people take for granted these days, like Android. Nearly everybody has an Android phone. They're the cheapest phones you can buy these days. And if you look at that and say ingenuity and advancement is bad and only ever harms people, I think that misses the, the bigger – the broader view of things, that free software started a bigger movement to change free culture generally and is also like closely aligned with that. And I think – uh, I, th- I think innovation is like really necessary for us to to come up with answers to problems that have existed for a long time. You know, when you talk about free, it's yeah, we have you know an internet which is practically free. It runs on people who did their work for the love of it, and they donate it to the world. We have a public domain full of you know just a gigantic amount of useful software, and still you get people who kind of sneer at it, like oh Linux doesn't work, and you know it's it's you know and, and they kind of feel without the profit motive you will never have you know innovation and effective stuff. And I I, I guess if you look at time goes on. It's you know communism it, it it fails in in you know certain ways when you talk about just you know scarcity of real life things, but as time goes on, we could approach the idea that we can get things for free and we can basically work for the love of it, which is so different the world we we work in where where we work hard just to have housing mm-hmm. that's it's and I guess when you have the idea that's most people's existence. People say, oh housing you know it mostly works this is a market that you know does its job, and still most people just work so hard just to just to live and it's just how it's how do you get people to say this isn't the world that we should live in hmm. <clears throat> i'm asking very big questions yeah here no, about no, how these you... are really excellent questions yeah uh 
I don't know. I, I think I think it takes like a, a perspective of change in the way that we think about stuff. Um, so so you, you mentioned that like you know some people look at this and say, well, if there's not a profit motive, how is any ingenuity or any innovation going to happen? But I would like counter that and say like name a startup that's ever turned a profit and hasn't closed after two years. Like nonprofit work makes things and it comes out the other side. And like Linux didn't come out from a profit motive. Uh, the free software movement and all the things that are wonderful about it and like most of the like the the data, data standards and formats like XML and uh, GIF images all those kind of like started out as I've got this problem and I want to solve it and I'm going to release it to the rest of society and see what people make with it and I think uh, I think we've kind of lost sight of the idea of ingenuity for ingenuity's sake um, like for example, NASA uh, didn't turn a profit, and we got such amazing things out of it. But then people turn around and say, well, I don't want to put something, I'm not going to invest in a thing that's not going to possibly benefit me later on. And I think in recent years, we've been so focused to think that better off means that you have more money. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have less pain and suffering in your life. It doesn't mean that you're well-fed. It just means that you have more money, so you can choose to do those things that you want to do. And I think uh, having like a more spirit of collectivization in the United States will kind of go towards a long way. And I think, to like tie this all back together, I think that's what socialists are more going for rather than building a specific platform, is they want to build the social change. They're going to put the social in socialism yeah. and change people's ideas about what it means to have a functioning society. Yeah, and I, 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 you see, I guess, you know, pushback on maybe things feel like if it's not part of the market and the profit motive, it won't happen. And you'd say that there's certain weirds. Like Lennon Lover 69 defended uh, BMR rate housing over public housing because one is how things are done in the real world, the other one's not practical, which is really weird that you have, you know, the Twitter's most prominent Marxist defending what is essentially neoliberalism over public housing because public housing feels like, well, that's that, that can't happen. That's not the way the world works. And it's just it's it's a strange limiting of our options when you feel that something that has happened continues to have success in you know many world class places just is not even on the table right now. And if you talk about innovative ideas, like just going back to you know public housing that works, but also talk about something that's completely different and you see only in small uh, community land trusts. This is something that you feel that you can get everyone on board. And this is, I think, one thing that you say, uh, DSA people I know have been extremely receptive to this. Mm -hmm. uh, have you seen, have you talked much about community land trusts with uh, DSA folks or? Not really. Not, not, not in a whole lot of depth. Uh, I've like, I mean, I myself have been wanting to, to set together like a communal housing situation in Oakland so I can live with my partners and family and friends. So, you know, every so often I like bring up the idea like, oh, yeah, I've been trying to like start a co-housing thing. I'll try and find people who are interested in it. And then uh, there's, you know, they're pretty receptive about the idea. They're like, oh, yeah, that sounds really great. Like, how's the community land trust work? And actually uh, the, the Jacobin reading group we had last week, there was somebody who asked a question. Uh, how, so I'm interested in learning about, this person said this, I'm interested in learning about how co-housing and co-ownership living situation is. And she said that uh, she, her and two friends went to a bank, so three people try to get a bank loan, and there's laws that say you can't do that. And then I just like told her, well, you could build an LLC, and that's a collective ownership kind of structure thing. And I think part of this, too, is like in the Bay Area, you get like such strong anti-capitalist vibes that it kind of bleeds over into, well, capitalism's bad. Capitalism uses markets and money, so therefore markets and money are bad. Even though, like, 
I think I'm I'm kind of a subscriber of market socialism, although I won't really call myself that. But markets are essential things, and I don't think right. I, I think capitalism is a very narrowly defined uh, economic system. And again, it's an economic system. It's not an economic tool. A market is a tool. But, a lot of times when I hear um, you know a, a lot of people on the left who you know say that they're they're marxists um you know from my knowledge marx was not saying that markets are inherently good or bad he was just taking them as a given Mm -hmm. you know this is the system you have to work within you can you know you can either take control of it and make it work for uh, human need or you can let a powerful group of capitalists control it whereas i I think a, a lot of people on the left that call themselves Marxists today are really uh, Polanyites uh, who say, well, <laughs> the idea of markets itself is bad. If you're participating in a market, then that is morally uh, reprehensible. And I think out of that, you sort of get this attitude that uh, supply and demand with regard to housing in the Bay Area, Bay Area doesn't matter. Um, I, I wonder if you had a, a reaction to that because um, that seems to be a very strange position uh, to me, and it, it might explain sort of the rift between the Yimbis and others on the left that uh, you know don't don't believe in the in the supply and demand argument. Uh, I think I think that kind of like speaks back to what I said about markets just being tools, because. <clears throat> In my view, tools and technology, while they might have a political background, a political origin, inherently, I don't believe that they've got, like, I don't, I don't think inherently zoning is a political device. It can be used to political ends and be political leverage, but in and of itself, the concept of zoning doesn't really say one way or the other what's good or bad. It's a tool for doing things. And I think markets are like that. And if you if you, if somebody says, well... Because a tool has been used for bad things, we should abolish it. Uh, I think that's really way too reductionist for anybody's take, except for the people who believe that. And uh, I don't know. I guess that's kind of my take on it. Is like it, it, it's a tool, and we can use tools for good or bad. And of course, if you get a you know a capitalist society that takes over, you know, get the one percenters owning all the land and owning zoning and controlling all that then yeah, whoever has control over the two is going to use it for their own benefit. But if we can like figure out a way to democratize it, then a tool won't necessarily be a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, I see a false dichotomy so much of the time of you have mm. folks on like the right who say a market is a system of morality, and it determines if you make the money and do the market, you are the you are the winners, and you deserve to be rewarded. And it is you know that's what a market is there for; it's to show what's right and wrong. And then people on the left feel like, well, that's the most horrible thing in the world. Markets are terrible. Markets don't work. Um, and they tend to go to something more like just removing the entire price system as a whole, which is where do you go from there? Because markets, in a sense, it's just kind of it's any just data. It's just transactions. It's, it's determining know, it's how like... much people want things. Really, if you don't have a market, you don't know how much people want things. And that's has its own issues when you have a world. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about maybe dividing where markets work, where markets don't. Community land trusts are an exciting idea because they show 
when you talk about building houses, markets tend to work. They work in the same way supermarkets do. It, there is a certain idea of as you go towards marginal cost of building houses, it becomes easier and better to build houses. That's mm-hmm. not the main reason it's going bad. Do markets work well for selling land to each other? It, they work terribly. They don't they don't they don't actually deliver efficiency at all. In fact, every time there is profit in there, it is not delivering towards marginal cost because the marginal cost of delivering previous existing land is exactly zero. Um, and not looking at improvements on the land. And I don't know, I, I just feel so much of the time, I feel personally a bit depressed. I see these false dichotomies that seem unbridgeable. And it's kind of you know, complicated to feel, to tell people, you know, you're not, it isn't either or on these two things, because if you do, it becomes it, it becomes either difficult or kind of in, accusatory to say something that's like, oh, no, I, I know me, I hate markets, this is who I am. And I don't know, do you, do you feel, how optimistic and pessimistic do you feel in practice when you try to bridge gaps of people who feel they're fighting each other? I think, I think uh, the, the like market abolitionists, the ones who want to go away with markets and say they're a bad idea, I think they're kind of deluding themselves. Because even if you went away with a market, went away with this distributed economic planning activity of a market, and you went towards a completely centralized economic planning activity, you'd end up what you'd end up with is you'd have you know some department in the central government office or wherever that keeps a list of these people need this much food. Well, look at that. Suddenly you've made a market because you know people's demands and you price it in terms of how much food they want. And then if you go to the step up and say, how are we going to distribute city? How are we going to distribute all this food to all of our cities? You're going to prioritize the cities that have the most food because you still only have scarce resources to spread around. So I think I think trying to abolish the market only ends up just like creating a different kind of market. Exactly, <laughs> but it yeah. doesn't abolish the market itself. The, Precisely. The, yeah. Yeah. The problem is allocation, and you're going to figure out how to allocate scarce things, no matter how you do it. You mm-hmm. can you can use a market as a tool to deliver it, or you could do it by decree in some central planning office, but allocation doesn't go away until you reach some post-scarcity idea where you can... Star Trek. Yeah, where you can live like Mark says, but call me skeptical if you feel in a world where people have... where there is scarcity, uh, that, that, you know, is that really... Can you you step in that direction to start? Let's go towards a world where there is no scarcity, and how do you get there? It's, It's impractical. There's no way to really start with that as your first step, as opposed to saying, we live in a world with scarcity, what can we do? And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's... Yeah, I I think... think, Sorry, uh, well, I I just want to say, like, so something about markets and and distribution of resources is, like, it also kind of implies that you can just make more of whatever the thing is until you've made enough to distribute it. The thing about land is we've got one planet, and that's it. We're not making more of it. So, uh, you know, the argument against markets or for markets, I don't think is too terribly relevant to a thing like land where it's really all of our resources collectively, but we don't treat it like that. Yeah, I mean, talk about the allocation, it doesn't really allocate more land to more people because you can't deliver more more land in this way. It It is it is, and it continues to be. Uh, yeah, so Tom, right. yeah. Tom, well, I, uh, I just wanted to say one sure. thing about uh, what I think is, is really the problem, and maybe the anarchists are, are better at sort of um, e- explaining their, their problem um, with what you know, may be called by, uh, you know, some Mark, uh, maybe Polanyites as a problem with markets. It's really a problem with 
power structures and 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 hierarchy. And so, you know, if you want to change the the power structure and and you know the the result being that some people have enormous amounts of wealth and some people and power and some people have very little is you know you change those power structures and so what's responsible for those power structures well you know it, it's it's the way that you define uh property you know so you could you can be a marxist and say you know let's uh let's collectivize everything um you know you could even say that well we're going to melt everyone's pots and pans uh and <laughs> well uh you know we'll, we'll use the metal for industrial purposes or you can say well some things uh are the rightful property of everyone or the the, the community in a sense but some things aren't and i think it's it's not so much about saying that you know either uh, all property is public or all property is private but getting the correct admixture um, and, and when you look at it in terms of uh, property and power structures, I think the economics then takes care of itself. It, it's not this sort of tertiary problem with uh, markets. It, it's it's a it's an issue to do with um, power and property. Well, property used to include other people. You know, when you talk about you know markets, it's say, oh yeah, this allocates other people to other people as slaves. It's, and people realize at a certain point that's not a really valid place to start with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is not property. I, I think something that's like missing from a lot of the, the the debates and discussion too is like the differentiation between private property, public property, and personal property. Because people, like, <clears throat> in my experience, a lot of, like, people new to leftism, new to socialism, like, if I, you know, the, the clothes on my back right now, they'll look at that and say, oh, that's private property. But not really. It's personal property. I'm not using it to make a profit off of it, unless I am, in which case it is private property. And I think when you when you think about it like that, there's still nuance to be had about what is and isn't personal, private, and uh, public property. And I think it'll take a lot of thinking and soul searching to figure out what exactly that boundary is. I mean, to take one example, look at housing, saying this is your house. You deserve you know, a place to live. You deserve a house. This is your house. This is your, your, your personal property. Do you have a moral kind of natural right to sell that and make a couple million dollars at some point? And people feel that's one and the same thing, you know, and they really are kind of two separate ways of looking at what housing property is. Yeah. I think one of the big differences that like I don't consider housing to be private or it shouldn't be private property. I don't even think it's personal property. I think cuz like for me personal property or private property means that you can like take it and go somewhere. I can't take my apartment out of my building and move it back to Ohio. That's that's public property at this point cuz I I literally cannot move it without a bunch of other people helping out with it. I can't take the thing, I can't sell it to somebody in Cambodia and say here's a home. Because I can't take it to Cambodia, otherwise, you know, it, it, whatever. Uh, so, like, I think when we think about that in terms of property rights and ownership, you don't really own an apartment. You have the the rights to a lease to live in that place for a little bit. And I think uh, Proudhon touched on this a, a bit ago, or uh, sorry, Engels when he was writing about Proudhon in the the housing question about this idea of you have the right or you own the right to use a piece of space for a period of time. And that's really what it is. It's not about you own the home. It's you own the rights to live in that home. And I think when you look at it from that way, then housing becomes more like infrastructure and less like private property thing that you own. Yeah, well, what's well, valuable is not really people 
producing housing, what's valuable is your city saying, here is a permit to build something here. The permit is an intangible, unreal thing. It isn't, you know, and that's where the money comes from. Mm-hmm. Well, the spatial location is, is I think, what we're, what we're really talking about, right? Or, or, I mean, you can call it land, but you get the wrong idea when you think of land, right? You think of like dirt and grass and stuff like that. Because, you know, if you talk about somebody with a mobile home, um, in theory, you could take that with you to Cambodia <laughs> if you wanted to lug it around. I mean, it wouldn't be strange at all to say, well, I don't want to have my trailer in this trailer park anymore. Um, you, you know, all of the imp- improvements that are on it, I'm, I'm just going to take it with me. But to say that, hey, I own this three-dimensional space that uh, has this relation to this other valuable space, to think of that as something that you absolutely own, that you're the you know, the the king of this region, of this territory, um, is bizarre in a lot of other cultures, but it seems to be quite normalized in ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think this kind of relates to also, like, traditional traditional ideas of ownership, kind of like speaking back to the idea of uh, the, the land trust. Uh, so in my experiences as a housing organizer, a lot of people, they think of home ownership as you own a single family home with a white picket fence and two point whatever kids and a little lawn. And they look at condos and say, oh, well, no, you like that's not that's not ownership. That's not the traditional concept of having a home. <clears throat> but I think they're still fundamentally the same. If you own a condo, you own the rights to a, you know, a cube of air floating in the sky. And if you own land, then you own the rights to a cube of dirt sitting on the ground and whatever air is above it according to like whatever you know the city says for height limits and whatnot or the minerals below (laughs) if you're in the u.s but not in a lot of other countries Mm -hmm. you talk about real estate speculation and people say it's always land speculation it's not just land because you can buy pre-existing you know units because those are either by government decree or just the limits of how much bedrock there is to support it. There is a natural limit to what it has there, and yeah, it's it's not saying that uh, you know an improvement is just oh you building it. it. It can go up infinitely. There is no such thing as is infinitely tall buildings. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're I guess we're running out of time here. I guess if final thought to you, if you said like you know one message you know of, of you know goodwill that you'd want to you know have more people recognize from the YIMBY to the DSA, and then afterwards from the DSA to the YIMBY, how do you think they could see each other better? I think we all need to be really loud and say that housing is a human right. Well, there you go. So uh, we've been talking to Victoria Fierce, uh, East Bay Forward, and uh, uh, active in both the Democratic Socialists and the YIMBY movement. Uh, this is KJSU Stanford. Thanks for listening. Um, previous episodes can be found at seethecat.org.